This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Trescott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 183 with Gail Caruthers. To skip this intro where I do get emotional and, you know, if listening to some tears here and there isn't your cup of tea, maybe I get it. I don't know. Tears aren't the worst thing in the world to me, but it could be for you. Go to somewhere around the 16-minute mark. Gail never got to say her name, so I'm pretty sure I'm saying her last name wrong. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know that embarrasses me so much. There's like so much shame I have around that. So I always have to be so apologetic about it. So here I am apologizing. You know what's just fascinating? I was going back and trying to figure out maybe how I could say her last name. I was going through this pitch and I'm just realizing that what was initially pitched to me about her story, we didn't speak about it. Like, that's what I love personally about Thank You Heartbreak is that in conversation in general, you know, you think you're meeting someone and they have this story, you're going to talk about this, and it goes in a different direction because you're not forcing a conversation. Ah, I mean, that's where the beauty, that's where the revelation, that's where the excitement, that's where the engagement lies. 100%, this is one of my favorite conversations that I've had. I feel like there was a true connection. We just started flowing with it. What you're about to hear, like I said, is she didn't introduce herself because the moment I pressed record, we were talking, we're in the midst of something, we're talking about the horses, and we never got to do the whole I'd love for you to introduce yourself to my audience. That opening that I have, which you probably know, I feel like is very stale as well. So we never did that. So you're gonna hear two people like in the midst of a conversation, which I also feel is very neat. You know, as a listener, you're kind of like this fly on the wall. And here you are really being that way, coming right in in the middle of a conversation. Also, what I think is valuable about it is you're going to hear about how she came into a whole new lifestyle, a whole new career. She has Sky Blue Acres, which is really about, if I can say it in my own words, you know, the emotional support that can come from animals, horses, after grief. Interestingly enough, and I didn't make this connection at the time, I don't even think I knew this. In fact, I didn't. My client wasn't yet doing horseback riding lessons. But now, after the fact, after I've talked to Gail, a client of mine is doing horseback riding. He had always wanted to do it. Now he's doing it after a breakup of his. And it really is nurturing his soul. It's making him think about the things that he could let go of in life. Not even the people, but certain lifestyles. What I like about how we have a bit of that in the beginning of our conversation is you get to hear about how she came into this, how she changed her life. 
I think about myself when I get the question, how did I become a breakup coach? I wish I had a very one, two, three step answer to that, but that's not how life for me has worked. It's almost as if everything was leading up to this. It's like I could find meaning all along with every pivot and me being thrown off course. It all makes sense. And with Gail, her coming into this was a serendipitous moment. A question of why did I even lean into this? Why did I make this promise to myself and decide even to keep a promise to myself that I didn't have to keep? And you'll figure out what I'm talking about. I'm getting excited about this also because, well, I've been feeling so high. And I'll tell you, I was getting emotional last night about it with a friend we were out and I was reflecting. And I think the emotions that were coming up was something that I had read about how I've almost been back in New York for six years. And it was reminding me of when I had moved to New York both times. When I first moved to New York, I was 83 pounds and it had been my dream to be here. That was the dream. I felt like I had almost starved myself to be here. That's a separate story. And then here I came and I couldn't exist in this dream world. I couldn't be in New York City because people were terrified of me and they said awful, awful, awful things. And I was in moments chased back into my apartment. It's not something I hate on other people for. I don't think that they were bullying me. I think they were afraid of me. And the reality is I became very afraid of myself. And I thank New York. And I thank those people that were, I don't know, toxic or honest enough to say the things that they said to me because it put me in an uncomfortable position to face the severity of where I was in my life. Now, when I came back to New York City, I was hopeful. I was hopeful that I had gained enough awareness and new practices to come in and move back into a new place and do things differently. But the reality is I didn't trust in myself enough. I had a track record of being hopeful and then turning on myself, repeating the same patterns, knowing what I could do, maybe what I should do, a different way of approaching and engaging in my life and denying that over and over out of fear, choosing different options, choosing always really to be in another relationship. So six years I came back and like I said, I was hopeful and it was terrifying what actually happened when I walked into my apartment and I closed the door. I shriveled up. I I just collapsed under the enormity of the silence that was around me that I really was on my own again and I didn't have faith that I could handle it and I raced away from it and checked up in a hotel room. I remember all the moments that played out after that, the fetal position that I was in, the watching people from outside of my window and thinking I'm back in the city that I love and I can't engage in it. This is gonna happen to me again. This is going to be my life again. And I tried the next morning to walk down and go to a breakfast and I was shaking, visibly shaking as I ate and I had to rush back to my room. I couldn't let other people see that. And then I went, I was like, oh my God, I have to get at least an air mattress so I can go back to my apartment. My cat and dog are waiting for me in there. I have to get back there. And so I went to Bed Bath & Beyond to get this air mattress. And I remember approaching just a salesperson in the store and he was talking to a woman and I was visibly shaking. And I thought, this is too embarrassing to keep on doing this. And somehow my life, eventually changed and it didn't happen 
six years ago. It didn't happen in that first year when I got back to New York. There were so many days where I woke up and I had to talk myself out of sadness. I could cry thinking about it. I could cry thinking about how much weakness I embodied, like how weak. I am really getting emotional about it, how weak I was for so many years. And, um, and you know, you're just, you're on your own with it. Like, that is who I was. I was on my own with this weakness. And I think that there was something about me that people didn't necessarily see the weakness all the time. They saw me as being someone that made some impression. I do remember at a certain point feeling like that I had become this person that I used to judge, which was that I wasn't in alignment and integrity with myself. So... I would show up maybe at points and make people laugh, but I would come back home and sink into my couch and be popping pills and Adderall and be literally melting away and just so depressed. And the idea that if someone were a fly on my wall, like I brought up earlier, that they would see that there was no alignment, again, with who I was on the outside world, that beat me down. And that was this goal, this promise that I wanted to make to myself that at least be the same thing. You know, it's almost like me being depressed all the time was better than this because it's like I was fooling other people so I couldn't get the help I needed and I was fooling myself and it's like, who was I? Why was I failing myself all the time when I was alone with myself? That hurt me so bad. Why will I put on a show and tidy my place up or come alive in these bursts of moments around other people, but I cannot come alive for myself? I don't know how I got here, but I guess it was just this reality last night that I read that memory of mine. And I was talking to my friend and she was asking me about it. And I realized that there is enough time that I have on my side at this point in my life. And I would say it's been like two years of making very intentional choices to change. And like when you finally have so much evidence behind you that you can dip into lows and come out of them, that they're not your reality forever, that you can manage this. It's like for the first time in my life, I have years behind me of being who I am now and it makes me so emotional. This is ridiculous. I wasn't expecting this. Okay. I hate people that apologize for their tears, so I don't want to, but it's just a big moment in my life. And I think it's because it's my birthday in a few days and I always reflect on things. And for so many years, I just, I prayed for energy, energy to do it all, to live another year, energy to feel alive, to come alive. But really importantly, to show up and make any impact on others and not for my own ego, but so they benefited somehow from me. So somehow we both connected and we were getting something out of this moment in our life that it mattered. I prayed for presence that I would be here now, that on this podcast, I would just be listening to who I was talking to, that when I was in front of someone, I would only be with them, that I wouldn't be in my head and thinking about my eating disorder, my weight and what that felt like that I wouldn't be thinking of this Adderall dependency, that I wouldn't have this shame that I was on Adderall, that I wouldn't have so much shame in my life. I mean, if you have shame, you're not present. And again, that felt like it was just so disingenuous 
It was so wrong to show up and to have anyone think that I was actually there when in fact I never was. And it's amazing that I'm coming into this birthday, 33, on Saturday. And I feel like for the first time that I will be not praying for something that I prayed for for so long. I have no idea what my birthday will wish will be. I'll tell you that. And so something that I also enjoy from this episode is that with all that said about feeling really strong, stronger than I ever had in my life, and if you're someone that's like, you're strong right now, you're crying, I just want you to know that there is strength in tears because the tears are perspective. And I am crying because there's so much gratitude and awareness of everything that it's taken to get me here. But today, like, there was this anxiety that I was feeling. And I sat down and finished editing this episode, and it reminded me that I have these conversations with strangers. And things that are discussed, they lift me back up. It's almost like a reminder from my past, because this was recorded a few months ago, how to rethink and reframe something that I'm feeling right now. And there's something so beautiful and so, I don't know what the word is, to think that I spoke to someone and the words that were shared are useful to me today. The reality is that we're not always going to just fly out of the gate as a new person and never grapple with certain emotions and feelings and questions and setbacks and this feeling of aching inside or having anxiety. We're not. We're not necessarily ever going to really be over it. And to think that there are moments of clarity that we have in our life and that something like this can be documenting that and can be useful to me on a day that I need it, that I need others and yet I need also myself. A reminder that Chelsea, today is just a day. Listen to what you said a few months ago. You've got this and other people are there to speak to. Life is meaningful and connection is everything. Thank you for being here, keeping the dream alive, for listening to those tears. I know from recent people that are reaching out to me, which legitimately fuels my freaking soul, that something that you are benefiting from is yes, listening to the podcast and then seeing my Instagram. And for a while I disappeared on Instagram, definitely in the feed, but on the stories, because I was like, there's a few reasons, but I was like, I don't know, should I be putting myself forward or should it just be about the podcast? And what I've heard recently is that there is value in seeing a single person or not even a single person, just someone that is honest about the depression and the addiction and the disorders that I have faced in my life, the shame, to see someone like me smiling and independent. Thank you for following that. I'm glad it touches you and that, again, it's valuable to you. And I hope that you always know that even when you see a smiling person, a person that does feel very strong in the place that she is at, myself, that there's also tears involved and there's days of questioning and having to readjust and reframe. But I wasn't always this way. And there were years where I thought that I would never, ever, ever get myself back. And I hate that whole thing, if I can, you can. But maybe it will give you some sense of encouragement. For me, it took a while. 
I do what I do to try to save people time, to try to bring them into truth to their honesty, but also bring them back to life sooner than I was able to come to life. Thank you again and again for believing in this and for having it matter to you, for letting it matter. Quite large, they're quite intimidating if you're not used to horses and you're not used to horse language. So from that aspect, we have people who come and they're terrified Mm. of being around them. And so just even having a horse come up and you being able to hold your space with a horse is very empowering. I see that. Okay. Yeah. Now, are all your children into the horses? They are. Really? (laughs) What would you have done if they weren't? Oh, you know what? That's a really good question. It's funny because really through their lives is really how we ended up here. I don't know. That's a really good question. So you're saying their interest, your children's interest in horses is what led you to owning your own horses? Yeah. Ah. Yeah, absolutely. There was no question. Absolutely. We were city folk. Really? We lived in the city. I feel like there could be a whole movie just on coming out here. Yeah, we were city folk. I didn't even own a horse, you know, and now I own six and I board six. So I have 12 horses on my property. It's been a steep learning curve. It's obviously this is over a number of years, but no, it was from me being at the barn all the time with my kids. They were taking riding lessons and I had come across a horse that was in this facility that it was very obvious he was ill-fated for what he was doing. He did not like his job. He got sick. And I had previously taken a workshop and gone as an attendee, like as a person attending a equine guided learning workshop. And I thought it was awesome and I loved it, but it was sort of like, oh, that's great, you know, put it in the background. But then I came across this horse that he was just so unsuited for what he was doing. Literally, he was dying. He was colicking, which is the official term in horse world. Anyways, I made him a promise. And I said, if he pulled through it, I would buy him and make him an equine got a learning horse. And I'm not really sure why I even made that promise, but I did. You saw this horse at one of your children's riding lessons. Yeah. And you saw that it was dying. He was, he was dying. He was literally dying. The vet came rushing into me and he was colicking, which is an inflammation of the stomach lining. And I didn't know that at the time. I didn't really know any of this at the time. And I did, I made him a promise, like a silent promise kind of thing. Like I said to him, I don't even know why I said it. It made no sense. I lived in this city. I have a, you know, I only had a backyard. Like you were just being very sensitive that day. I guess, <laughs> I guess. Like I literally made him this promise and I did. And he pulled through and I kept my promise. Wow. It made no sense because he wasn't suitable. I had two daughters at the time. Well, I still have two daughters, but I mean, <laughs> at the time, at the time, they were riding Hunter, which is over fences. And this horse was not suitable for that. But here I was going to buy a horse that neither of my kids could even use, you know, in this sport. What I did is I went and got trained to be a facilitator. Like I had said I had taken the workshop and I was so intrigued by it. I loved it, but I really didn't have any aspirations of incorporating this into my life until this sort of serendipitous meeting with this horse. And I just spontaneously made this promise <laughs> to which I had to keep. Well, I didn't have to, but I wanted to. I'm such a believer in that, by the way, the promises that you made to yourself. And if you keep them, they can change your life. Yeah. And that's what happened. It was really odd because now I had to, you know, I didn't tell him, like I told, actually had said this to my kids, but you know, there I am going back to my husband and I'm like, Hey, mm-hmm. I want to buy this horse. 
you know, and he's like, oh, I mean, great. Which one? You know, right? Yeah. It, oh, absolutely. And he's like, great. You know, oh, great. Which one? Is it for Katie or Zoe? You know, in the sport, we're going to take them in the sport. I'm like, no, actually, he can't jump, which is why I'm going to make him a, you know, I give my whole idea here. And he's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Gail. So it may be sarcastic, obviously. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we worked it out. It ended up working out beautifully, like serendipitously. It was crazy how it worked out. And then about a year and a half later, we bought a farm. Whoa. Then you bought a farm. Yeah. We made the big leap and I suggested that we buy a farm. But this is like a big lifestyle shift. Oh, 100%. We didn't know anything about about this. Now we live in the country. We're rural. We grow hay. My husband now, you know, is out there cutting hay and putting hay out for horses. And we had to learn. It was a really steep learning curve. Living in the country, just on a well and a septic, a house that's like 160 years old which has its own issues. So it's just been a really crazy journey that we've loved every minute of it. Now, did you see yourself as being someone that was flexible like this? Yeah, I I have a habit of jumping into things. (laughs) It's not the first. I do. Really? I tend to be someone who is like, you know what, we'll just jump in and I'll figure it out. I don't wait for the blueprint. I love that. I'm like, if we waited for the blueprint on everything, how many things would we miss out on life? I think that we really would see our life go by. We would. Were you the same way in dating that you would kind of jump in rather than waiting for like the green light from someone else? What do you, okay. Talk to women about this. Sometimes I feel like women are waiting for men to give them the green light rather than initiating and kind of being bold on their own. Oh, I've done both. Mm -hmm. Some ended really badly on both ways. You know, I've made those bold statements and, and asked somebody out and been like completely turned down. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, 100%. I'm going to say that's a good question though, because there's such a vulnerability, an emotional vulnerability to the dating game. I can recover coming into a 23 acre horse farm faster than I did, you know, at times being turned down because that was so raw. Right. I will say I was probably a little less open to the jumping and I had done it, but definitely that felt more of a burn then something like this not working out, that wouldn't even phase me or, you know, taking my time to figure out this stuff. I think it just comes down to the level of emotional vulnerability you have with that kind of stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course it does. It's interesting to think about how people can be such risk takers in other areas of their life, which still determine their future. If you're risky in business, that still determines your future. And same with love. And yet people can be less risk takers there. Here's the thing in the risk taker though, there's the other side of that equation, which is where I was better at, which was getting out of dead end relationships or relationships that just weren't good for me. That I could do. I'm not saying that I didn't take time to do that as well, but I got better at that than I did the front end. I think that's huge. I think that's huge. I mean, I remember that was like my main motivation to get into breakup coaching or to be someone that could be a breakup coach. It wasn't about so much like processing it afterwards or getting into relationships again. It was really leaving when I knew that I should. That's really hard. One of the first lessons I learned in my 20s was learning to distinguish between loving someone who I loved and the difference between being in love. Mm. And that was huge for me. It was a, you know, I was dating somebody for years and I had to really figure that out. And when I figured out what it was I was feeling, because I had no idea what I was feeling, um, I just knew it was off. When I was able to articulate that, 
all the pieces fell in place. And it's like, this is right. Now I know why I need to do this. Because for a while there, you're thinking you're going crazy. Like, because things on paper, it looked like a great relationship. But in reality, emotionally, for me, it wasn't. Right. So when I was able to finally, but that takes time, right? When I was able to finally articulate that, I was like, oh, I get this now. And then I was able to make those changes much swifter, much quicker and stick to it. But when you don't know there's a difference and movies can screw you up here because it's like, oh, well, there's this element, there's this element. Oh, this all makes sense on paper. But at the end of the day, you have to be tuning into what feels right for you. And that really is no different than what felt right for me in that moment when I made that promise to the horse and no difference to that what felt right for me when I made the jump to coming to a farm. And all the other times that I've done this, it's because of what I felt. I knew what that alignment felt like. And it really goes back to every time we make those decisions that we know, maybe you do know, you don't know, but I just know I have to do something. Right. And it's listening and feeling it and making that choice without always knowing why. Right. I think that's what I was trying to get at with the green light in dating is that one, I think you're so right about leaving, but then also the power of pursuing something when you don't really know why you should, you just feel that you must go after something, even if it's just to get to know someone. That's a really good point. And I think what will maybe help people maybe trust that a little bit longer is if they drop the expectation of what it's supposed to be, if they do the initiation of reaching out. Do it without any expectation that this is going to be the love of your life. You're going to get married and have six kids and grow old together because that may not be the reality of the situation, but it still may be someone that you need in your life now at this moment. If you have the other expectation, you really can overlook someone. Oh, 100%. I remember feeling with this one guy that I met that really changed things for me, feeling like, I don't need you to love me. I just want to know you. And I remember at the time just thinking, it isn't about this guy being my next boyfriend. I just knew that there was something powerful that could be in the connection, even if it was short-lived, that would help me pivot in the way that I was living and loving people in life. And it was true. It was really accurate. And I get so hung up on when I listen to people, they seem to miss that there's like this gray area, that not everyone is about figuring out if they're going to be the husband. So much gets lost when you're just looking for that one person. So many people that you should be meeting along the way that are there to affect you. I couldn't agree more. And there's so much that we can get out of each interaction. People that we're dating and hanging out with, having whatever level of intimacy that we're having, because it's all fine between consensual adults, right? Like you're right. When we get that expectation and that image, it blocks so much. Right. And I also think somehow maybe it's part of the story that we're telling other people. I don't know how we think it should go. And if we're being like the pursuers, for example, we think that if we were to tell people that story, it would seem like someone wasn't interested in us. Like people aren't chasing us and sure of us, then this is not a good story to tell people. There's more of a tendency to share with people about all the people that are lusting after us rather than these moments when we've really gone out on a limb and we don't know what's there, but we're curious enough to explore it. Which is so much braver in life. I know. And so much more interesting when you put it. I love this. Like that is so true. Again, it goes back to like, well, A, there's that vulnerability aspect, but it's almost like that vulnerability of, because we want people to think that you're saying, oh, I'm like, I have full X number of people lusting after me and, and asking me out, which is such an ego boost, right? It is. And it's such, you know, that fallacy that we're so amazing, but really reframe that and be like, go out and conquer what you want to find for yourself. Not to be afraid 
of asking people out and experiencing for whatever moments or moment you have with them, taking that information and applying it back to your life for growth. Mm -hmm. There's no difference in that and how people do that in business. Right. Or any other aspect, what we do with friends, like, you know, you're thinking that you meet up with somebody and, oh, you know, I don't know if I could hang out with this person in full time. Well, you don't need to, right? You know, like, oh, I don't know. These people are so, you know, draining. Well, fine. You know, maybe they're the person that you see a few times a year, but you connect really well with them a few times a year. They don't have to be your long lost friend that you're going to text every day. We're allowed to have these intermittent relationships. And the context that you're talking about, I think, fits into every aspect of our lives, which is taking everything for what it's presenting to us in the moment. Really, it's living your life in the moment. I think that if you look at life as like people are sent to you, then there's more of a, a willingness to embrace yeah. that these shorter relationships, that they're important. There's a serendipitous type of context to all of it, agreed. And if you're looking at it through the eyes and the expectation, maybe that's the wrong word, of just taking whatever is gleaned in that moment or in the moments, the time frame is fine so that that attachment doesn't become a barrier, a willingness to detach maybe. Right. Well, what happens if we break up? What happens if I don't see them anymore? Then you don't see them anymore. Something else will come along. I mean, there's something so empowering about just being able to be as kind of simple as that. I remember one of the quotes that I hated growing up was, it is what it is. And yet there's something so empowering as I've gotten older about allowing that to be the case. Oh, I actually like that thing. <laughs> yeah, I used to judge. I was seeing some guy and he wasn't all in with me. And I remember on his Facebook, that was his quote. So I hated it from that moment forward. And I totally get that. Yeah. But just like you're saying that if someone does leave your life, there's an acceptance around it. We were writing this article and it was about, you know, everyone talks about forgiving or forgetting. And I think that the more empowering option is just accepting. Yeah. Well, I guess that's also like in the five stages of grief. Yeah. So the five stages of grief, uh, let me just give you a bit of a background on it. So the five stages of grief were written originally by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. When she originally did her research, she was studying people who were terminally ill. They were facing their own death. And then over the years, it sort of got transferred to grief in general. However, Obviously, if you're terminally ill, those stages, you were going to have you know, acceptance to your inevitable death. However, if you're the griever, those stages, they're not linear, meaning that not everyone's going to go through any of those stages or even in the order that they're right. there. The biggest part is to remember that, hey, these are not stages that, you know, because everybody seems to like these neat little packages. You may go through one, you may go through four, you may go through none, or very quickly, you may skip through all of them. But the acceptance at the end, just to reframe this back to your initial context, is really the dropping of resistance. Mm. It's really allowing what is happening in your life to unfold and to sit in it and to drop the resistance to whatever is happening. When we drop the resistance, then we are allowing whatever serendipitous events, people, you know, thoughts to come into our life and to touch us in a way and in a moment that can be transcendent that can be uplifting. And I guess that leads to the word acceptance, which is what we started with here. And acceptance being that it is what it is, going back to that, mm -hmm. that statement, right? That you're simply allowing and dropping the resistance and taking what you need to take from whatever the situation is. And you get to define that. We all get to define what we take and what we leave. Right, which is, I think, where the guy that worked with her on that book and that research, you know, he came out with a new book recently. He did. The six-step being meaning. 
Yes. And taking the meaning from whatever the situation is. And if it's grief, then taking that meaning as for me, I take that to be because I work with people through grief and loss. So I reframe this in the context of what was the relationship like in your life? What did this person bring to your life? What gratitude Mm. do you have for this relationship that was pivotal in your life? Yes, of course, we're going to have those moments of grief and loss because we're human. But grief is really a container for us to process release and the release of not the love of the relationship, but the release of the resistance that they're no longer here. Mm. So grief is a very, very powerful container. If we go back to those stages, everybody can probably see themselves at some point in any of those stages and glean something out of any of them, whether it's the denial is, doesn't have to be about the denial that they actually passed away. Our brains can rationalize that, but it's the denial around questions like, how is this happening? How is this going on? Why now? Like, why them? Why me even? So it's really allowing our brains to wrap around information because we're really in shock. Right. And it just takes time for the present moment to kind of catch up. The reality to catch up to the present moment is maybe the better way to say that. Around all of this, especially for any of the clients that I've worked with, even when we just talk about the context around the stages and giving them permission to feel those stages is really what it comes down to. Because a lot of people don't realize because we're so emotionally phobic in our society. Oh my God, emotionally phobic? We are so emotionally phobic and we're so emotionally illiterate. When these emotions come up, it shocks people. The intensity is shocking to them. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know what to do. We're so also phobic about how normal am I, right? It's like, well, if we're emotionally illiterate and we're phobic about having emotions, period, no wonder when such a huge emotion as grief engulfs us, we don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So I just find a lot of the times with my clients, permission is the gate opener for them to just drop the resistance to what they're thinking and feeling and allow it to happen. What was the most uncomfortable stage for you to be in? Um, so I've gone through this with both of my parents, but in different ways. Like my dad was a shocking death and my mom's was a longer terminally illness. I think the stage for me was for my dad anyways, it was, I don't know if it would fit to the right word. It's a good question. I'm still trying to figure out what the right stage for that was, but I would say for me, the coping of it was not disbelief that he had, yeah, I guess disbelief. I, I would probably say the first one then, the shock of it, because it was so shocking. It happened so fast. I, you know, that here today, gone tomorrow was really it. So really the, and then it would happened on a Thursday and I was in university and I had to go home and then I was back at university Sunday night. So it was almost like I went home for a long weekend and, you know, tended to my dad's funeral. So being back in the reality at university was very shocking for me. It was just jarring for me. My reality, it didn't fit anymore. And it's almost like this weird feeling like really time doesn't stop for everyone the moment this happens. That was huge for me. Just back to the shuffle of things, how? That was really hard. I remember just going back and I was just sitting in one of the halls and wondering why everybody was still going to class. Like, you know, my dad just died, you know. But you realize life goes on. Then all those sort of existential questions come into like, oh my God, how significant am I actually when, you know, know, the mailman is still delivering mail and you're still going to classes and the world didn't stop. Like those are huge questions if you've never experienced that before. So that idea of where you are in life and who you are in the world and then, oh, okay, (laughs) 
I'm not as important as I thought I was. I am to my family, but to the bigger world, yeah. So I think grief also encompasses those existential sort of bigger life questions if you were to have a a situation where it's a little explosive in your life like that. Which I think can really, when you're young, change the way you're living. It changes the way you're living 100%. I mean, this is no doubt. Maybe this is obnoxious to bring up, but it makes me think about Kobe Bryant's death. And this happens so much in our culture. It's like, whatever the news is, everyone focuses on that. It's like the worst thing. You know, when Kate Spade died, it was the only thing people spoke about. And then Anthony Bourdain, it's like everyone forgot about Kate Spade. But it's like the Kobe Bryant thing happens. It's like this huge shock. Everyone is like stunned for so long. And then this virus happens. And it's like, whatever happened to Kobe Bryant? It just makes me think about that family and how everyone was so like riveted and heartbroken. And then just like that, it's kind of put to the back page and another epidemic that's really affecting people directly happens. And it almost puts things in a different sort of perspective. So do you mean from the perspective of the family or just culturally itself? I think both. I I just think both. I think it's probably hard on the family because like everyone was collectively grieving and probably wanted to have justice for the family and I know that they're going after the pilot and stuff. And then something that like really sweeps a nation and is actually affecting individuals. It's not just like, yeah. it's weird how grief happens for people on a public level and how they can feel supported by the world and then something else happens and you can feel left behind. Yep. hundred percent. Yep. There's that for sure. That's like that's more of my point is like, it just that image of like you in the hallway I think about like Kobe Bryant's family, like they're in the hallway and they're now seeing that other tragedies happen. And that's weird. You thought your tragedy was the heaviest at that time. Yep. And then this tragedy happens and it's not a hierarchy, but no, no, no. I understand exactly what you're saying. And I think that sort of speaks to what I was saying a little bit earlier is that those questions about our place in the universe and who we are, Mm. um, that really comes into play when you experience these shocking death, whether it's, you know, into my own little immediate life or something like a Kobe Bryant, which is on a much bigger scale. Cause I remember when that whole accident happened, I don't even follow basketball. I, right. I barely knew who the guy was. Me too. I really felt it. Yeah. I was sitting at my desk and a notice came up on my phone and I looked down and Kobe Bryant, you know, I got the information was that's how I found out. I immediately felt it. And I'm like, I don't even really know who Kobe Bryant is. Not even a fan. No, I don't even watch basketball. I couldn't have told you what team he played on. I wasn't even sure what sport it was. <laughs> right. But I knew the name. So of course, logically, I'm like, what is wrong with me? I guess what I'm trying to say is I felt it immediately before I opened up the collective grief, you know, listening to everybody else. Mm. As a human, I felt it immediately. And I think it was partly because I just knew the name. It was a famous name. I knew some kind of semblance about this person. There was some level of attachment. Attachment is the wrong word, but of something that's like, oh, wow. You know, this was a tragic accident that happened to like somebody you don't expect to die that way. Right. You just think is invincible. You think that they have a long road ahead of them. Yeah. It's crazy to think that it can be cut short. And I think about with this virus, how, you know, there are people that are fine today that won't be here and like, they don't see it coming. Like all these people that have died, never in a million years did they think that they would die from this because it didn't even exist. 
it didn't exist. Right. And, and they don't have no idea how they even, most of them won't even know how they contracted it. Right. Oh, except for that bus driver. Did you see that video? No. Oh my God. Sorry to take this in a different direction. No, no, it's all the same. It's all good. So there's this, uh, this bus driver, I think it was in DC and he put up with this Facebook live and he gets out of the bus and he is just, he seems like such a nice guy, but he is pissed. He's like, there's a woman that came on this bus. She just coughed in front of nine people. He was so upset. Like, I'm doing this job for all of you guys. And you don't have the respect during an epidemic to cover your mouth the one thing you've been told. So this whole thing goes on. You know, he's this whole Facebook Live. Four days later, he gets the you know, yeah. he gets the symptoms and he died within six days of that Facebook Live. Yeah. And what's so scary is you're watching someone react to the very thing that then killed them. But also knowing that with something like this, like they couldn't have taken a bath. There was nothing that you can do. You can't go take plan B in 72 hours and it gets rid of something, exactly. you know? So really when you're describing that, and I had not seen that Facebook video, but when you think about that, again, like these bigger questions about taking that responsibility for, and how, how little we really are thinking beyond ourselves. And what is this pandemic really, what are the bigger questions that we're really being faced with, which are things like that, mm-hmm. which are in one hand, we're saying how we can feel so insignificant to the universe when something so tragic in our lives happened. But at the other one, which I'm hearing from this story is how instrumental each one of us are in the collective and taking care of everybody. Right. And how my individual actions, as insignificant as I may feel in the loss because of everyone else's life is going on, but at the same time, my individual action has consequences for everybody else. Yeah, like grave consequences. Yeah, I think that- Huge consequences. I think he was saying, you know, I'm here caring for you guys by picking you up and driving you places. And there's no sensitivity or care coming back from people like you that are coughing. And his point is like, you know, we all need to do our part here. The respect of see me as a human being, see me as another entity, another person that when you walk by me, be mindful and be careful of my presence and my sovereignty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I hear from this story is that we are all in this collectively and I'm a sovereign individual and you're a sovereign individual, but you coughing in complete disregard to anybody else around you during a pandemic is almost like the lowest form of, like, there's no self-awareness there at all. There's no respect. There's no ability to recognize you and me beginning and ending. Wow. Maybe that's what one of the reasons or one of the lessons that we could even take from this whole thing is how interconnected we really are. Yeah. Connection is usually is invisible. We make invisible connections every day. Our impact, you know, this virus is invisible, but also our impact on people is often invisible. Very much so. You know, that old saying when I was a kid, which is actually not true, but, you know, sticks and stones could break my bones, but words words will never (laughs) hurt me. And it's like, are you kidding me? Who are you trying to be? Who are you trying to be? Yeah. And it's like, you kidding me? The dicks and stones, my bones will mend. Those words are going to fester for a lifetime. (laughs) I know. They're going to mean something different 20 years from now. I'll still be thinking about them. Yeah. And how the trajectory that that can sometimes a cruel comment can make for you. Like, yeah, words are powerful and they're energy. They should not be lobbed. Also the quote, 
actions speak louder than words. Like people's words are actions. They're choosing their words. That's an action. What are you talking about? Actions speak louder than words. Like sometimes I feel like people kind of minimize what they say because, oh, it was just said out of this, but you chose those words. You chose not to respond. You know, I think people should be much more thoughtful about the words they use, the tone they use, all of them, or the things that they don't say. That's exactly, I think, the point of that comment of that saying actually is that a lot of people aren't even in tune with what they're really feeling and thinking or what may, sorry, not thinking, but feeling. They'll say one thing, but their actions don't back it up. Yeah. And honestly, if we go back to the dating scenario, that's one of the first key things that are, you know, that's so indicative of what's going on in a relationship, you know, as our measurement of care, our measurement of being of intimacy, our measurement of my importance and People can say one thing, but if their actions don't back it up, then I always say follow the actions because I can say anything, but how I actually display my words is more important than what I'm saying. It's so hard because kind of going back to that word promise, it's like people can promise a lot of actions within their words. You know, like they'll talk about the future, what they're going to do for you in the future. And I think a lot of people hold on to that promise, but it's never being delivered upon. And you want to kind of buy someone more time. Sometimes because people are promised many things, the moment someone does, they don't even have to follow through on it. The fact that they promised it makes them more special than others. I think that we often get into a relationship with the promises that are being made to us and not the actual actions that are happening now. Oh, agreed. Just to follow up on that, I think that kind of context around potential, we fall in love with the potential of someone is sort of another addendum to the promise. And we stick around because we see the potential within these people. And it's like, again, follow what they do now, not what you think they're capable of being in the future. I also think it's like kind of a personal problem. It's like, I've done it. I did it so much of my dating life. It's the potential and it's almost rude. I think about how if I knew that someone was falling in love with me or staying around thinking about, well, Chelsea will eventually become like this. Or if I kind of show her her potential, she'll really be something. At a certain point, you'd kind of be offended. Like I'm not enough for you now. And I think that a lot in relationships, we're sticking around for who they'll become. Oh, exactly. It's kind of disrespectful. (laughs) It's disrespectful to the person, but it's disrespectful to ourselves too. Totally. You know, because we're shortchanging our lives and we're shortchanging what we need now. And it's, you know, again, it's, it's about looking at who we are and our own sovereignty and who we need to be in life and deciding what that is first. And then, you know, going back to what we were saying at the beginning of this, which I think fits great, which is taking those opportunities to explore people for all kinds of reasons. Mm. So that we can really build upon and help define, you know, who we are and what we need. But if we're only looking at every relationship or every potential relationship or interaction as, you know, groom or bride material, then we're losing so many opportunities for ourselves, for us to define who we are, because we need those interactions to chip away at our own self delusions and our own self ability to decide who we are, right? When you're younger and before you actually get married, or even if you decide to get out of the marriage, right? Like, because we're always evolving. There are always opportunities to help us figure out who we are and what we want, not what they want. Right. Like, what do we want in the relationship? What are we capable of giving and not giving? Right. 
they say about going on job interviews and it's the same with dating. At a certain point, you need to be seen if that job is right for you. Right. Exactly. Right. It's always about selling yourself, whether you're dating and you're selling yourself with the dress and the hair and the makeup, or you're going on the job interview and you're researching this, you know, what do they want from me? But look at what you can bring to this. Is this the job that you really are best suited for? Again, is this the right company? I think imposter the whole time. Well, I think that's the problem is that most of us, I honestly, I don't think I've met anybody yet who doesn't have that imposter syndrome, which is the barrier, I think, for most of us getting to this place that we're talking about and living our lives from a different vantage point, which is what is good for me versus how do I keep this person or how do I get this job? Right. You know, so it's really a reframe. That's one of my reframe. Yeah. Yeah. Reframe is huge. Reframing is pretty much what I do all the time with my clients and horses, because that's the biggest thing is we're reframing um, thoughts and opinions and, you know, ideas. I can't imagine that the clients come to you though, thinking that that's what they need to do. I'm not sure that people realize like the power of reframing unless they're taught it. No, you don't. But I'm I'm also a trained mediator, which is what I do in mediation. Mediation is all about finding common ground. And usually it's always about just reframing the situation and reframing the way that it's presented. That's usually what disarms people and drops the resistance so that you can now negotiate. Mm. They can't hear you otherwise because they're too bent on defending. So until you realize that whatever you're negotiating, you know, whatever you're mediating, you have to find the common ground so that they can drop the resistance so that it's not about me taking all the pie and you getting none. That should probably be taught in like college or something for people within relationships even to become their own mediator. There's so much in life that we're just thrown to the wolves to figure out. Right. Right. You know, death taxes and relationship management, we're all thrown to the wolves and figure it out as life happens to us. I mean, meanwhile, like my algebra test, I'm never going to use it again. Never. So like, we don't know how to grow our own food. We don't know how to manage relationships, managing relationships and managing grief. And that's all modeled. So if you had a really crappy person who you were modeling, someone who was defensive and blaming and not ability to take any type of responsibility for their actions, like, well, if that's your only model, that's not the healthiest way to grow up. Let's just No, because the idea being that people just mirror it. Going back to what you were saying before, if people like emotion phobic, you know, there's not necessarily the feeling that, oh, well, there's different models out there. And I know this because people have told me so much. Maybe people keep this very private, who their parents are and how they go about things. So you end up not even realizing, I mean, just being taught the very simple thing that there's more than one way to do something is big. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, I agreed. There's so many life skills that we're literally left to our own devices to figure out, which I honestly think is a big underscore to positive mental health in so many people. You know, the technology and the life is sped up so fast. That on top of a generation, because it's not like any generation's ever been taught it, not having these life skills, having to figure it all out. And then every generation it changes because the technology changes. And it does, right? Like, you know, my parents, you were asked out on a date and you went to the, you know, you went to the soda shop. I'd say my parents, right? You know, we went to the movie. Now they're not coming to the front door for my father to meet. I'm being called up on the phone. Now I don't even know my kids are receiving texts. So I'm not even hearing these people. I can't even answer the phone and have a brief conversation before I hand it off to my kids, my daughter, right? Like, cause it's all via text. I don't even know how many people they're talking to in any right, way. Right, right. And if you were to meet them, it would seem too serious. 
you know what? I am old school. And I have said, you know what? They have to come and I have to meet them. I have said that. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time that they're going out, I'm like, well, then he has to come and he has to pick you up. You know, or if I'm dropping you off somewhere that I need to meet them first. Have them come stack hay. Yeah. Well, yeah, we've offered that. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I have said like, yeah, I've even wanted to meet their friends. Right. So tell me something about these people. So crazy is you could even look them up. That wasn't able to happen. Right. Or with your parents. That's so true. Oh my God. You could like spy and you could be like, I don't like his friends. I've seen pictures. It's so true. Right. There's the other surveillance side that we didn't have before. (laughs) Think of that. (laughs) Cyber surveillance. And I I hadn't even thought of that. Good one, Chelsea. No wonder you haven't brought him home to mom. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my God. I wish I could keep talking. I have another interview in five minutes. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. I wish... I could keep going. No worries. This was fun. You're fun to talk to. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I have a few more questions real fast. I coined the word break upward, and I'm curious what it might mean to you. Oh, I love it. Break upward. I love it because then I think it's a great term to coin. I think for me, what that means is take the beauty and the love and the experiences and take the goodness from every relationship because there's gold in every person and every relationship you had even if it was negative, because then you learn something about yourself Mm. or you learn something about the world or you learn something about your strength. I don't mean to be trite when I say that. I don't mean to say that everybody had a great relationship and you take that, but there is gold to be found in the unpleasant moments as well. And the really hard and painful lessons as well. Break upwards by taking what you can and moving on with that, moving higher, moving to the next level of who you need to be in life. Who's your next best version of you to quote Oprah. Thank you for doing that. My, you know, yeah, like become the next best version of who you can possibly be. So break upward, take what you can, apply it to yourself and discard the rest. Mm. Leave it. Don't take the insecurity with you. Drop it. Mm. Take the strength that you gained from the knowledge of what this person brought to you and apply it to your life, apply it to your sovereignty of who you are. Independent, however, interconnected because we are interconnected if this pandemic is not teaching us anything but that. Mm. I live my life by these serendipitous moments. And I think that we're very connected to life. And I think, well, we are interconnected completely, like not just with people, but with the consciousness. We're so interconnected consciously wise, right? That to live your life, if you can start to understand and see your life through that prism, then the shitty stuff that happens to us, I'm sorry if I can say that, but You know, the negative aspects of our relationships and our breakups, you start to see them through a different visor, through a different lens. And then you realize, well, we're interconnected and I'm here to teach us not just the love and the light, but I have to almost dump certain assumptions. And sometimes I have to do that by learning something that wasn't so nice about myself or wasn't so nice about somebody else, you know, that there is cruelty in life. How do I then help myself and others around that? What did it teach me? Yeah. Anyway. Bravo. Not anyway. (laughs) Tell my audience where they can find you. Oh, so Sky Blue Acres is online at skyblueacres.com. All my contact information is on that website. So Sky is with an E. So it's S-K-Y-E and then Blue Apes, skyblueacres.com. That's such a pretty name. Funny enough, I remember the horse I was telling you about. Yeah. His name is Sky. Oh, is that why it has an E in it? Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. The farm we moved to, all the roofs of the barn and the arena, the out paddocks and stuff, they're all blue. No. 
That's yeah. So gorgeous. Yeah. So my daughter came up with the name because I didn't know what to call it. And she's like, why don't you call it Sky Blue Acres? Because oh, of Sky. And, yes. and then it sort of has that ring of coming here in Sky Blue and having that, you know, hopefully a transformative experience working with our horses, which is what I honestly believe this horse came into my life to do. There's no, you know, that was a serendipitous moment that I seized. And for whatever reason, I trusted the moment. I trusted what came out of my mouth and I followed it. And thank God you had a husband that didn't put a stop to it. Well, yeah, you know, he's learned to live with my serendipitous moments. He's learned to, <laughs> he's learned over the years that, you know what? She's usually right. She usually has a hunch that he can't see. Yeah. But he doesn't have them, but he trusts mine. He does have them. I shouldn't say he doesn't. He doesn't live them the way I do. That's just part of that give and take. He's learned to trust me. Mm. <laughs> so. But thank you so much for this. I wish I could talk longer, but. Yeah, no problem. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea. C-H-E-L-S-E-A at breakupward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D dot com. And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.